we're doing something that on, on any other level I would rail against. We're doing Christmas early. <laughs> um, having been the one, as I said last week, who, who put, you know, put the fit picture on Facebook of the mince pies in co-op in July with great sort of crossness and come on, one, you know, Christmas isn't round the corner yet. We also decided some time ago that actually what often happens with Christmas in church is that we hit Christmas about, you know, 10 days to go and suddenly it's all Christmas services and there's no time to actually take a breath, chew over what it's about, really dive deep and dig deep into what the Bible says about the coming of Jesus and God's preparation for that coming. And so what we're doing is that over these few weeks in the lead up um, to Christmas, overlapping with Advent, uh, which officially begins next week, we're thinking about God's big plan. And we're thinking about how Jesus coming and that first Christmas wasn't simply God's uh, idea on the day or response to something that happened that week, but was centuries, millennia, eons of preparation. And so last week we started back in Genesis 1, 2 and 3 and we talked about uh, the the beautiful sort of uh, theological poetry there that shows us something of the heart of God for the people he's made and loved and how he promised, even then, back at the end of of Genesis 3, promised a saviour and promised a rescue. And uh, this week we're going to come to what confusingly, I know, will be the candle we light next week in our Advent wreath that points us back to Abraham. And so uh, Russell's going to bring us at very short notice, thank you my friend, um, a pair of readings. Um, and uh, they're both up on the screen, you can follow them in your Bibles. Um, thanks Russell. So Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 to 5. The Lord had said to Abraham... How's that? Better? The Lord had said to Abraham, Leave your country, your people, and your your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So Abraham left as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abraham was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. He took his wife Sarai, his, his nephew Lot, all the possessions they had accumulated and the people they had acquired in Haran, and they set out for the land of, land of Canaan, and they arrived there. Can we go straight on to the next one? Okay. So the next one is Hebrews chapter 11, 8 to 19. By faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. By faith, he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. By faith, Abraham, even though he was past age and Sarah herself was barren, was, unable, was enabled to become a father because he considered himself faithful, who had made, because, sorry, he considered him faithful who had made the promise. And so from this one man, and, and he as good as dead, came descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as countless as the sand on the seashore. All these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance. And they admitted that they were aliens and strangers on earth. People who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. 
If they'd been thinking of the country they'd left, they would have had opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. By faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had received the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son. Even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Abraham reasoned that God would raise the dead, and figuratively speaking, he did receive Isaac back from death. Amen. Thanks, Ratson. Both the blessing and the challenge of Christmas, of course, is this incredibly familiar cast of characters. Uh, those of you who have children in church today will um, uh, find that they have piled into the Christmas story um, for the second time in a row, and uh, they're going to be uh, thinking about the angels coming to the shepherds. And when you think of the nativity story, there's a very familiar cast. There's no surprises there. You've got Mary, you've got Joseph, you've got the shepherds, you've got the three kings or wise travellers, you've got uh, the baddie in Herod. Uh, you've got even the sort of non-human um, characters like the star um, or the apocryphal donkey or whatever it is. We know that we have a sort of cast of characters that we know is coming rather expected. And of course, we sort of relax into the comfortable sense of a, a story that we know well, that most of us at some point, if we've, especially if we've grown up in this country, um, have known since childhood one way or another. One of the glories of Advent and of the tradition of Advent candles that we begin next week, of course, is that it introduces some unexpected people into that cast. There's John the Baptist, somebody that comes confusingly after the Christmas story and that we include in Advent. There's the candle that we light for the prophets, people like Isaiah and Micah, who hundreds of years before the coming of Jesus pointed ahead and said, he's coming. God is coming, coming to rescue, coming in the person of his son. And then this first Advent candle that we light next week points us even further back, maybe some 1,500 or more years before the life of Jesus, to Abraham, to Sarah, to the patriarchs and the matriarchs, those who right at the beginning of the formation of God's people received something from God. Seems slightly bizarre if we think about it for very long. Here is this baby born uh, in Bethlehem. Here is this baby born in, in the midst of uh, Israel, Palestine, and the Roman occupation in probably about three or four BC. Again, slightly confusingly, but it's for another day. Um, and we're now looking back 1,500 years. Why would we do that? Well, Matthew... Uh, the writer of uh, one of the Gospels is convinced that Abraham does belong there, right in the first or second verse of that Gospel. He begins the story of Jesus, not with Jesus' birth, but with Jesus' um, ancestors, his genealogy. And it starts with Abraham. It starts all the way back, and he says, this is where it begins. So what does Abraham have to say about Christmas? What example do Abraham and Sarah set for us, as we're invited into this story. Because that's what this is all about. 
There is a story, by which I don't mean a fiction, but a tale, a narrative, a a whole sequence of events that you and I are invited to be part of. But it's not a story that simply starts with the birth of Jesus at Christmas. It's a story that, as we were thinking last week, goes right back into the mists of time, into God's purposes in creation, and then travels on a trajectory through Abraham and Sarah and Isaac and Jacob to Joseph, to Moses, to the prophets, through King David, all the way through to Jesus and beyond. And one of the things that Abraham and Sarah are going to teach us is how we respond to God's invitation to us to also be part of that story, to also respond to God's promises and God's intentions. So where do we start? Well, let's just start with the most obvious thing, which is simply this, that Abraham's appearance at the beginning of Matthew's Gospel, Abraham's appearance in Advent, Abraham's appearance actually in that reading that Russell brought to us from Hebrews 11, is a reminder of God's plan having very, very deep roots. This is not a little sapling with roots this deep that can be sort of picked up or blown over or plucked from the ground. This is a tree whose roots go down deep, deep, deep into the soil of history. This is something that um, has its starting place as far back as you could possibly imagine. So last week we talked about Genesis 3. We talked about that picture language of the people that God had made turning their backs on him, but God refusing to turn his back on them. Of God's uh, creation choosing to put themselves first, choosing to believe a lie, choosing to go their own way, and God saying... I will not give up on you, even though you've given up on me. I will not turn my back on you, even though you've turned your back on me. I refuse to simply give you up to what you've unleashed on the world. Instead, I promise that one of your children will crush the head of evil, even as that evil bites at its heel, that sort of poetic, distant, through a mist vision of what one day Jesus would come to do. And then we come to Abraham. Now, Abraham, as far as we can tell, was living a semi-nomadic existence um, out in what we would, I guess, now call the Middle East. Um, An ordinary man, um, uh, maybe quite an important man in his society, certainly seemed to have quite a lot of wealth um, and had quite some standing in his society. And then God comes and makes both a promise but also a challenge a request. Be worth just having that Genesis 12 reading open in front of you for a moment so we can see what it is that God pointed him to. Uh, you'll find it very early on in your Bibles there on page 13. The Lord said to Abraham, leave your country, your people and your father's household and go to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you I will curse and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Now actually as you get to know the story of the Old Testament, as you get to know the trajectory of that story that passes through Abraham down through what we then get to call God's Old Testament people, ancient Israel, what you see is of God unfolding that promise that he does give them their own land, 
that he does make them into a nation with a king and a capital and a temple um, and uh, a palace and an army and uh, a government. But that all the way along, God is saying to them, I didn't give you this gift simply to make you feel more comfortable. I didn't give you this gift simply to make you feel better about yourselves. I didn't give you this gift simply for you. I gave you this gift, as he then had already promised to Abraham, so that all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. I was going to... Um, make reference to trickle-down economics here, but maybe that's a little bit obscure. But, but uh, there is some sense in Scripture that, that as God pours blessing into people, the idea is that when he gives blessing, he doesn't do it simply for us to hold on to, but so that it might overflow to others. And as far as it goes, that's not a bad way of thinking about it. There is a sense in which it's not meant to trickle out of us, but to flow out of us, to overflow. And God's Old Testament people, ancient Israel, is no exception. As God pours into them with the gift of a land and a king and prophets and the law and a temple and a great nation, God is saying to them, as I've poured blessing into you, it's not just for you, it's meant to be for all peoples everywhere. And as you begin to read the prophets that come along, one their biggest complaint about Israel about God's Old Testament people, is that they've taken this blessing and sort of worn it like a badge that says, you see? See what I did? This is for me. God approves of us. God's happy with us. We're the best. We're at the top. We're at the top of the tree. But the whole point of being at the top is not because you're the most important, but because from you is meant to flow these blessings, says God. You are simply meant to be the doorway through which I can enter into all people's lives. You are simply meant to be the conduit through which my blessing flows to all people. People are meant to look at you, ancient Israel, says God, and see me. People are meant to see the way you live out my law and see something of my character. People are meant to see the way that you organise your nation and see something of the way that I organise all human life. People are meant to look at the way you treat the orphan, the widow, the alien amongst you, the exile, the refugee, and see something of my heart for those at the bottom of the heap. People are meant to look at you, see something of me, and find blessing from me. That was their job. And it started with Abraham. God said to Abraham, I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. He didn't just put a line there and say, isn't that great? You've done well. This is my gift for you. Actually, he said, so that, so that. The Bible says that God's people again and again and again messed up. They simply couldn't get past this sort of trip hazard of it always feeling like it was about them. We have the same problem, of course. We're maybe not very good at seeing God's blessings for us, but when we get them, we so quickly assume that they're about us rather than seeing them as a gift to be a blessing to others. And all the way through the Old Testament, there is this pointing ahead to the day when God will take all that was meant to happen through his Old Testament people and and bring it to fruition in one person who would in his own life sum up all that God's people were meant to be. Jesus. Jesus came to live the life, as I said in our uh, post-confession blessing, to live the life we cannot live for ourselves on our behalf and on his people's behalf. Jesus came to live out just what it means to be a blessing for others, 
to be the ultimate way in which God blesses all people, to sum up all God's promises to Abraham and to his people, all God's intentions, he came to live this life that actually God's people never managed to live, to point the way to God, to live a life that shows others what God is like, to be a way in which God blesses others. This plan has been a long time in the coming. This gift of Jesus sums up hundreds, thousands of years of preparation. This is what God always intended. And we're on the receiving end of it. This is our story. This promise to Abraham is about you and about me and about the people who live next door to to us and about our kids and about the generation after them. This is God saying, I've got so much to give and it's for all people everywhere. The people you think are never going to come anywhere near God's blessing and the people you think are much closer to him than you. The people that have never heard of Jesus yet and the people who've turned their backs on him and think it's not for them. This blessing, this blessing God promised to Abraham through Jesus is for you. So the first thing we learn from the life of Abraham and Sarah is that God's big plan stretches back through history and on through to Jesus and from him through even to us that we would be a blessing to all people. And that sort of um, impetus to look outwards, to look beyond, is the heart of Abraham's challenge. That's a big thing he's being asked to do. That verse 1 of chapter 12, leave your country, your people, and your father's household. Those three words meaning slightly different things, almost starting out like this and focusing inwards. Your country, the, the place where you live, your people being your sort of local community probably for Abraham, maybe the village or the collection of tents where he was, your father's household, meaning his immediate family, the, the route that he had there, maybe the, the, his, uh, 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 an aunt, an uncle, a grandparent. He had to turn his back on everything that he knew so that God could propel him outwards to give to that which he did not know. That's one of the hardest things about following God, walking with Jesus in our lives, is that God is always nudging us beyond what we know and where we're comfortable and where we feel safe. It's not often the same as Abraham. It's does occasionally happen but it's not often that God literally says to you or to me I want you to leave your country your people your father's household it does happen some of you have experienced it but it does happen on a daily basis of being willing to step away from that which makes us feel comfortable and to be a blessing beyond those boundaries you might for example know somebody who's walking through an incredibly difficult time in their mental health or in the life of their family. Something that makes you feel very uncomfortable. Something that's unfamiliar to you. Something that feels like a foreign land to you. And God says to you, I call you to be a blessing there and in that place. It could be as you meet somebody of literally a different country, literally a different culture, literally a different journey from you. And God says to you, I want you to step outside of what you know and be a blessing there too. It could be somebody from a much more subtly different culture, a different way of thinking, a different way of speaking, a different way of approaching life. Maybe a fellow parent at the school gate who you wouldn't immediately click with on the basis of thinking, well, they're just like me. 
and God says, I call you to leave and to bless. That same journey, that same narrative is summed up in Jesus because, as we hear in the New Testament time and again, Jesus leaves what we think of as the comfort of heaven. Everything he knew, the safety of by his father's side, he poured out of himself his power, his visible lordship, and he steps into the darkness of this world. Why? To be a blessing for us. I wonder what God's calling you to this week. I wonder how God is calling you to be part of this story of stepping beyond your comfort zone and of being a blessing beyond what you know, your country, your household, your people. God makes a promise to Abraham and to Sarah that he will make of them a great nation. It's a huge surprise, that, because they're fairly elderly by the time this story happens. They don't have any children, which in that culture was a huge shame and also a great fear for their old age. They had no one to look after them. There was no no welfare state or old people's housing or NHS. It was literally a fear for their old age, as well as a metaphorical sense of our family's going to be at an end. God makes a promise to them, but he also makes a challenge. The promise that God wants to make of them a great nation to bless the nations and a challenge that they have to step into that and go beyond their own comfort zones. And how do they respond? Well, that's what Hebrews 11, that second reading that Russell brought for us, is all about. They respond with something the Bible calls faith. We, we think of faith as a sort of strong believing, don't we? It's a sort of got that sort of um, extra strong mint belief to it, you know, faith. I've often told you the story of the of, um, people down over the years who find out I'm a vicar and uh, who various people have said to me over the years, oh, I wish I had your faith. As if they're, you know, if only looking at my muscles and going, oh, if only I had muscles like those. Or they're, they're looking at, you know, um, some musical ability you have and think, oh, I wish I was as musical as you. They look at our faith and they go, oh, I wish I had your faith. Actually, the Bible doesn't talk about faith like that at all. Faith here in the life of Abraham and Sarah is having simply hands open and empty to receive God's gift. That's faith. That's what these are. Faith is having open and empty hands to receive God's gift. It doesn't create the gift doesn't sort of grab it and grasp it off God, doesn't sort of wrestle him to the ground with the strength of our belief. God doesn't look at it and go, oh, you've got good faith, I'm going to give you a gift. God offers to Abraham and Sarah this promise. I'm going to make of you a great nation, I want to use you for blessing. And the problem is at that point, Abraham and Sarah's hands are full of other stuff. Their country, their people, their household, familiar stuff. It's the stuff that you and I carry around in a great armful, let alone a handful. The stuff that makes us feel comfortable. The stuff that makes us feel settled. What's in our bank account? What's in our household? What's in our bodily health? What's in our reputation? Those things that we hold on to and we go, that at least I have. That at least I'm going to hold on to. That's going to get me through today and tomorrow and next week and next month and next year and the rest of my life. I'm going to hold tight onto that. And then we have this problem because God comes along and says, but I want to give you this. I want to give you the gift of Jesus. The gift of the one who lived and died and rose again for you. I want to make you a blessing. 
to all peoples. I want to give you the gift of my love, of my forgiveness, of my new life by my Holy Spirit. We've been thinking over the last few weekends about God's called alongside one, his Holy Spirit who comes to live in us and with us and walk with us. And the way that we receive God's gift of his spirit, let alone any other gift, is that we have to have hands empty enough to receive. To put it in a different metaphor, I don't know whether you've ever seen the film, films that they've done where they've, um, they show a, a chimpanzee or an ape that's put its hand into a glass jar to grasp a nut or a treat, grabbed it like this, and then can't get it out of the bottle. And of course the trick is that it has to let go of the treat to withdraw the hand. Sometimes we are so firmly grasping hold of something that's good that we don't have hands empty enough to receive God's gift. If you read through Hebrews 11, that reading that we had, what you find is that if you trace Abraham and Sarah's story over the next few chapters of Genesis, again and again and again, the, the, the journey God took them on was all about letting go of what they had and receiving what they had not yet. The hardest one is in Genesis 22, where God says to Abraham, you know this son I've given you finally in your old age, the the, the culmination of all your hopes and dreams and wishes, this most precious of gifts, Isaac. I want you to give him up. I want you to sacrifice him and, and give him away. Now, of course, God does not call Abraham in the end to go through with that. He provides an alternative sacrifice, a a goat that's caught in the thicket. But God needs to know that Abraham's willing even to set down that most precious of gifts so that actually it's all that God has to give that he's open to. And, of course, that's what we see Jesus do at what we now call Easter. Jesus willing to give up even the gift of life itself so that he was able to receive the greatest gift of all, which was that God used him to be a blessing to you and to me. God loves to bless. He loves to give. But he doesn't just give to build us up, to make us feel good. He gives to us so that we're a blessing to others. And the thing that holds us back time and again is that we hate to leave what's familiar, what makes us feel safe, what makes us feel comfortable. Stepping beyond that helps us to be in a place where God can use us to bless others. And that's the story that we find summed up, fulfilled, perfected in Jesus. And that's the story that he then passes on to us. Not just at Christmas, but at every time of the year. Hebrews 11 says this. If they had been thinking of the country they had left, they would have had opportunity to return. But instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. We're going to pray. John's going to come and lead us in some songs of response. But we're just going to be still as he comes to prepare. Just going to have a little bit of space, a moment of quiet. Maybe in that space we might be willing for God by his spirit just to poke and prod and nudge us to recognise what it is maybe we're holding on to 
what stops us from being wide open to God's good gifts of blessing and of being a blessing to others. And maybe just in the quiet and the silence we can thank God for his greatest gift of all, the one to whom this promise of Abraham was pointing, the gift of Jesus. And to have wide open hands of faith to receive once again the gift of his spirit, the one who blesses us for the sake of others. I'm just going to keep silence for a minute or so as we speak to God and as he speaks to us and as he fills us afresh with himself. Come Holy Spirit, we pray. Help us to respond to you.